All right, Jeremiah 31, and let's start in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What an amazing, amazing series of promises. I just love Jeremiah 31. I think it's an incredible uh, section. We're going to hone in, and we could spend an entire conference probably on this section, these four verses, but we're going to hone in specifically on the promise where God says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What does he mean by that? Well, the first thing we need to address is what he's talking about here is obviously a new covenant. And that new covenant is the covenant that we are in. That's the covenant that we are in today, right? So testament means covenant, right? So you have the Old Testament. It's talking about the Old Covenant and you have your New Testament. It's talking about the New Covenant and we are New Covenant Christians. That's where we find ourselves. And what's unique about the Old versus the New Covenant is in the Old Covenant, there were some people that were in the covenant, but they didn't know God. They were actually a part of Israel, They were actually a part of this covenant people, but they didn't spiritually know God. And people had to go to them and say, hey, you need to know the Lord, right? And and he's saying something's gonna be radically different about the new covenant. And that's that everybody that's in the new covenant, the youngest to the oldest, the least faith to the greatest faith, all of them will know the Lord. That's a promise. All of them will know the Lord. This text is a big part of the reason why I don't think we should baptize babies. The people that are in the covenant are the people that know the Lord. The people that uh, have tasted and seen that he is good, that have, have experienced God, so to speak. When he's talking about knowing him, I don't think that God means knowing about him. Right? I don't think he means that the people that are in the new covenant know some facts about him. Oftentimes when the Old Testament used this word, knowing someone, it's a profoundly intimate word, profoundly intimate, oftentimes reserved for marriage. Okay? When he's talking about knowing him, he means knowing him intimately and personally in a relationship. There is a massive difference in knowing things about God and knowing God. And what he's saying is everyone that's in the new covenant will know God. Jonathan Edwards tries to explain it this way. He says, thus there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that has never tasted honey, but a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. 
So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about, I think. I think that's what Jeremiah is talking about. He's talking about not just having an opinion that God is holy, but having a, a real sense of his holiness. Not, not just knowing, okay, I read in my Bible, the correct answer, is God patient, true, false? The correct answer is true, right? No, no, you, you've tasted of the patience that he's shown you in your life, right? You know he's patient because he's been patient with you. Okay, he's talking about a real knowing of God and knowing God, knowing God in this way is far and away the best thing that anyone can have in this life. That's the testimony of the scriptures. That's the testimony of godly men and women that have gone before us over and over and over again. I think about a Philippians 3. What is Paul's aim? What is his hope? What's his deepest desire? It's that he would know God. He counts all other things as rubbish compared to that. Just compared to knowing God. Knowing God is the greatest end. It's the greatest thing for us. In a sense, this promise, um, this promise is one of the sweetest ones that we're going to talk on in this whole conference. I'm eager to slow down and chew on it with you. I'm eager to slow down and, and just re- rejoice over it with you, okay? It, th- there's a sense in which um, everything in your life is a pursuit of a certain kind of knowledge, Okay. I, I don't want to take this too far, make it a hard and fast rule, but go with me here. There's a kind of sense in which this is true. So if you're going to college, which most of you are, uh, in order to make a lot of money, why do you want that money? Well, it's so that you can know what it's like to be able to buy whatever you want, right? You know what it's like to have security in your bank account and not to be afraid of bad things happening. You want to know what it's like to be able to have that big house, right? It's you're, you're actually pursuing a certain kind of knowledge there, okay? Or let's say you're going to college because you want to get married, okay? That's, that's real, okay? That's, not, that's fine. <laughs> Don't want to dog on that. You're going to college because you want to be married, right? You, you, want, you want to know what it's like to be married, right? You want to know what that's like. That's the reason you're going to college. That's the end thing. You want to know what it's like to have somebody to come home to and not have to say goodbye at night after you've been on a date. You want to know what it's like to share life with somebody in that profoundly most intimate of human relationships. It's, it's pursuing knowledge, right? If you want to have kids, right? It's, you want to know what it's like to have kids and to laugh at them and throw them in the air and see them grow up and then you die and they take care of you, right? You want to know what that's like. <laughs> No, that's what I think about, man. <laughs> I seriously am. I'm telling Aspen. I, no, no, it's fine. No, not a depressing way. I'm telling, like, I tell Aspen all the time. Like, well, she's a little too old for this. I tell my younger kids all the time. Listen, I'm wiping your butt now, but you're going to wipe my butt later. That's what I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. All right. You'll see. You'll see. Give 50 years. You'll see. <laughs> But the point is, right, the point is all of life is pursuing after a kind of knowledge, okay? There's a sense in which that's true. And if that's true, I don't know about you, I, I want to pursue the, the highest and greatest knowledge, and that's certainly God, right? It, it, it would be better to be single all of your life, never know what it's like to get married, and to have a more profound knowledge of God, I think that's what Paul's saying when he talks about singleness in in Corinthians, right? It it would be better um, if it means, uh, having kids means less knowledge of God, right? Uh, It would be better to have, not have kids, okay? And to have profound knowledge of God from that than, than to have kids, right? One is actually better. 
Now, I'm not saying that you can't know God more by being married. You can. Okay, I'm not saying you can't know God better by having kids. You can and you do, okay? I'm just saying propositionally, knowing God is the best. And so you should choose that over any other thing. This is what J.I. Packer says in Knowing God. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Since I don't have slides, I should read that again. Okay, I'll read that again. What makes life worthwhile? Or what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher and more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? And here's what's so amazing about Jeremiah 31 is it's a promise. All of them, from the least to the greatest, will know me. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Oh man, the gospel is just so good. It's better than you think it is. Jesus has purchased you more than you think he has. He has purchased us this the most exalted knowledge, this knowledge of God. Now, I don't think Jeremiah 31, when it says they will all know me, I don't think he's saying there that they all will know the Lord to the same extent, okay? Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be saying that he presses on to know God more. I think there is more of knowing God that we can have. And because I believe I'm speaking to Christians, I believe all of you that are in Christ, you do know God now. You've tasted and seen that he's good, right? You've had a sense of his sweetness, more than just a proposition, but he's actually won your heart and you've seen his beauty and you really love him. And here's what I want you to know. There is a kind of knowledge of God that Christians before us have known that few of us really know anything about. This is what Spurgeon says about it. He says, there are common frames and feelings of repentance and faith and joy and hope which are enjoyed by the entire family. That's that knowledge of God that everyone knows. That's what he's affirming there, Jeremiah 31. But there is an upper realm of rapture, of communion. This is Charles Spurgeon, okay? I'm not, this isn't Bethel, all right? Charles Spurgeon, all right? <laughs> there is an upper realm of rapture of communion and conscious union with Christ, which is far from being the common dwelling place of believers. All believers see Christ, but, not, but all believers do not put their fingers into the prints of the nails, nor thrust their hand into his side. We have not all the high privilege of John to lead upon Jesus' bosom, nor of Paul to be caught up into the third heaven. In the ark of salvation, we find a lower, second, and third story. All are in the ark, but all are not in the same story. Most Christians, as to the river of experience, are only up to the ankles. Some others have waited till the stream is up to the knees. A few find it breast high, but a few, oh, how few, find a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. One example of somebody who found it to be a river to swim in that they cannot touch is Sarah Edwards. 
So I quoted Jonathan Edwards a second ago, and his wife's name was Sarah Edwards, and she was meditating on Romans chapter 8, fitting, and she found herself in this just such a confident assurance that she was known by God and loved by God, and her salvation was totally assured, that unshakable, that she had just such an incredibly sweet sense of it that this is what she says. When I was alone, the words came to my mind with great power and sweetness. They appeared to me with undoubted certainty as the words of God. And as words which God was actually speaking personally to me, I had no more doubt of it than I had of my own being. That's, that's what I mean about fighting doubt. I cannot find language to express how certain this appeared. My safety and happiness and eternal enjoyment of God's love seemed as durable and unchanging as God himself. Melted and overcome by the sweetness of this assurance, I fell into a great flow of tears. The presence of God was so near and so real that I seemed scarcely conscious of anything else. And if you go and you, you read Jonathan Edwards' memoirs, it, it's, it's, kinda, it's just bizarre to read it. It's just bizarre to read her experience. This is just a tiny snippet of it. But you just go and you read it, and it's like she's in the throne room. It's like she's in the presence of God, and she's filled with rejoicing nonstop. It's just this amazing thing. She knew God, right? It wasn't just this propositional thing for her anymore. She was really tasting and seeing that he's good. You know what? Am I making, am I making sense? Okay, that's what's promised to us in Christ. And it is the highest and greatest knowledge that you can ever attain to, that you could ever, ever, ever attend to. And this is actually, pursuing that is how you live a well-lived life. Okay, guys, people have known this truth for 6,000 years, that a life well-lived is a life spent pursuing the transcendent. Okay, you can go to random animistic tribes in Papua New Guinea and they'll tell you, yeah, of course that's true, right? You can go throughout all history. People have been worshiping made up gods, right? People have been doing all kinds of things. Why? Because they know there's a wisdom in seeking something beyond themselves and seeking the transcendent. This has been an obvious fact for all of human history and it's only our um, unintelligent, almost use a different word, unintelligent selves in the last 200 years or so that have said, oh, that's all baloney. Well, that's insanity. We consider ourselves wise, but really we're fools, right? Uh, I don't need a transcendent thing. I don't need to know God. I can, make, I can make purpose for myself, right? I can figure this thing out for myself. I can live for my own comforts. I can live for my own pleasures. I can do my own thing. And you know what that leads to? A, a radically wasted life. Every time. We all know this, right? A life spent fulfilling your own fleshly desires is a wasted life. A life spent in your mom's basement eating Cheetos and watching Wheel of Fortune is a wasted life. We know it's just a fact, right? That's tragic. That's tragic. But seeking something transcendent, even in a sense if you're misguided, is less tragic than that, right? Right? Like there's this guy named, uh, I think his name Ernest Shackleton. I forget his last name. And, and you know what he did? He wanted to take a group of people from England down across Antarctica and up the other side. That's what he wanted to do, okay? 
There's a sense in which he was seeking something beyond himself, something bigger than himself. He was seeking to be the first one to explore these lands and do something incredibly difficult, right? And it was going to be incredibly difficult. They didn't have heaters and things, right? They were on a ship, okay? And he put out, you know, this message, hey, I want to do this. Anybody want to do this with me? And thousands of men, thousands of men responded, sign me up. Why? Why? Man, I, I think it's probably because we're desperate for purpose. We're desperate for meaning. We're desperate for our lives to count, right? And it kind of seems like if I travel across Antarctica, my life will count then for some reason. I don't know why, right? I'm, I'm seeking something beyond myself in that. And, and, and there's a sense in which I think that's true. By the way, they didn't make it. Horrible things happened. If you can go read that story. Um, most, most of the people survived, okay? <laughs> uh, Seeking the transcendent is the way to a meaningful life. And, and it's insane that we've totally jettisoned this idea. And I think we're actually seeing all the fruit of it now. And I actually think people are starting to wake up to it, right? Like, um, this is a stat that just blows my mind. 60%, apparently, 60% of teenage girls in America today um, report feelings of depression, right? Like they're, they're reporting, yeah, depression, yeah, that describes me, 60%. More than not, more than not are depressed and hopeless and feeling like they want to die, right? Now, some of you guys are not that much older than teens. I think this is like three or four years old, which means you were teens when it was done. And if that's still true of you, you know, most of you women report feeling some symptoms of depression. Now, hopefully because you're Christians, that, that might not necessarily be true. I'm, I'm not trying to say being a Christian means you're never depressed, but that, that just blows my mind. Suicide apparently was the 11th highest leading cause of death in America. I think this was in 2019. And how do we think we should cure it? What's our nation say? Maybe we're doing something wrong. Maybe, 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 we've, gone, maybe we've taken a wrong turn somewhere in the enlightenment process. No, that can't be right. Let's just give them some medication. That's got to be what's going on, right? That's insanity. It's insanity. No, what's wrong is people need something to live for. What's wrong is people need some hope in their lives, right? What's wrong is people need to know they're not just a meat suit walking around that's meant to live and die and do whatever makes them feel good in their lives, but there is something that they can give their life to and seek that's beyond them that matters and that is important. And in Christ, guys, we have that in spades. We have the knowledge of God. Psalm 16, 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If we've been promised this, okay? If we've been promised this knowledge that gives all of our life meaning and value and purpose, if we've been promised this knowledge that is, uh, there's joy forevermore in this knowledge, how then should we respond? Well, there, okay, there's a principle here for us, for us to take, and that is every time we get a promise, like Jeremiah 31, the scripture, it never, it's like the scripture category just thinks differently than we do. They, the writers of the New Testament just kind of think, they thought differently than we do. We hear, oh, it's promised, great, I don't need to do anything, right? They heard, oh, it's promised, awesome, now I have the courage to go after it. 
That, that's kind of how they thought about it. Let me read. Let me, let's go back to kind of our anchor text for this whole, um, this whole series. Second Peter chapter one says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, verse five, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Do you see that? What's the for this reason? What's the connection? What's he talking about? He's talking about the promises. Listen, what's he saying here? Because you've been promised this, because it's guaranteed, because it's been given to you, therefore make every effort to run after it. Does that make sense? That's the way the Bible talks. That's the way the Bible thinks. That's the way you, when you are transformed in the renewal of your mind, that's the way you'll think too. You won't think, great, it's promised, so I don't have to do anything. You'll think, this is promised to me? Yes, I'm gonna go after it. Or let me read to you 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 through 18. It's the same thing. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1, chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you see that? Because he's promised, let's run after it. That's the way I want you to think, right? Because he's promised it, I'm going to run after it with everything I have. So here's, here's the argument that I hope drives you into seeking God for the rest of your life. Number one, God exists. Okay, can you nod if you agree? Do we agree? Okay, good, everybody agrees. Number two, he promises that if you seek him, you will find him, okay? You seek me and you will find me when you seek after me with all of, my, all of your heart. Everyone who asks, you know, if it's, uh, finds, the one who knocks, the door is opened. If you seek, you will find, right? It's a promise from Christ, okay? So number two, he promises that you will find him if you seek him. Don't actually nod if you don't believe this now. If you believe that, nod your head. You will find him if you seek him. Okay, fewer nods. And then number three, there is nothing better than finding him. Nod your head if you believe that. Okay, good. Now, if you can believe these three things, God exists. He says that if I seek him and I seek him with all of my heart, that I'll find him. He says that I will know him in his promise baked in right here in Jeremiah 31, right? He says that I will, I will know him. It won't be wasted effort. And then number three, there is nothing better than finding him. If those thing, three things are true, I don't see any logical response other than to settle it in your heart and in your mind to seek after God with everything in your life, right? Like if you don't believe one of those things, then yeah, it makes total sense not to do that. If you don't believe in God, then yeah, don't, don't seek after him. If you think it's gonna be wasted effort, you might give your life and not actually find him, you know, yeah, maybe take the easy route and eat the Cheetos, okay? I, I guess I can understand that. 